This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Daniel Henderson. And yes, 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 we are back here to talk about film. And um, oh my God, Danielle, um, I can hardly contain myself because we have we have a mailbag today that is so great and epic. I agree. And it's perfectly timed because I have nothing to discuss in my personal life this week. <laughs> Uh, I don't either. Strangely enough, uh, I've been kind of uh, traveling a lot and I just I don't even have any tales to tell. It's been kind of boring, to be honest. I'm just taking pictures of farms and looking at the days go by like I've got nothing. (laughs) Well, well, then listen, in in lieu of that, let's just read the shit out of this mailbag. I mean, we get a lot of good letters, by the way. All the time. If you want to write to us, I saw what you did, pot at gmail.com. And typically we do the mailbag um, on our bonus episodes where we read a lot of your letters and answer them and that kind of stuff. But sometimes we have to pluck one out of the inbox and bring in a professional. Millie, I am so excited about this mailbag because the guest that we have brought on to answer this question is someone that. I am a huge fan of yes. um, her podcast. One of her podcasts makes me feel so much smarter and has me really re-examining a lot of things that I just took as fact in my life. It's made me a more inquisitive person. Um, and her voice is just like, like honey dripping into your ear. Yes. <laughs> like what more could you want? From- Unlike our podcast where we're just screaming and laughing all the time. She's just like <laughs> so calm and wonderful and just so smart And I think is the exact right person to answer this question. So, folks, I have to tell you that the person we've brought in for this mailbag is none other than writer, critic, host of the podcast You're Wrong About, and co-host of the podcast You Are Good with Alex Steed. It's the one and only Sarah Marshall. Hi, I feel like I should be bursting out from behind a curtain. That was incredible. <laughs> we did send glitter, but it may not have arrived. You know, supply chain issues. Yes. Yeah, the glitter supply chain is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> we are so psyched to have you here. How are you? I'm like, my day is much improved after hearing that my voice is like honey in the ear. I've never heard that before. That makes me so happy. I think that like... Oh. A shouty show is hot honey in the ear. How about that? <laughs> I like I like the way you're thinking. It's like that. Um, has, any, has anyone ever tried to give you, because you live on the West Coast, you live in Oregon, right? Yeah. Anyone ever tried to give you that, like, in the winter, they're like, you have to drink this and not get a cold. And it's just basically like honey and apple cider vinegar and like Oh, Chipotle like the fire ciders and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> no, I just visited a friend who, like, gave me fire cider to take on the road. Um 
It, yes, we can't. I mean, the thing about the Northwest is that we're 30% ferment, so we really have to keep yes. the levels up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, we're working with a lot of dampness here, so we have to just, <laughs> yeah. you know, meet it where it lives. We must nourish um, our spores. Completely, completely. Oh, <laughs> that should be on the, the state motto, but you are just... <laughs> I, I've truly been a fan of of you and your podcast, um, You're Wrong About, for a very long time, and um, pretty much since the beginning. And I have to say that, like, for listeners who may not be familiar with You're Wrong About, it is such a an important factor of the of the society that we now live in, of the culture that we now live in, to go back and reexamine things that we've been told are facts, or even, in my case, sometimes things that I lived through and just misremembered or were only given bare bones facts about. Um, some of my favorite episodes are the Kitty Genovese and the Bystander Apathy episode, mm. um, Dan Quayle versus Murphy Brown. You did wow, a yeah. very deep dive into the O.J. Simpson case. Still which down is there. Yeah. Still doing it. <laughs> still doing it. But even things like, you know, recently you had an episode about Reconstruction with Jamel Bowie, mm-hmm. and it made me want to go back and read more books about Reconstruction and kind of really get into it. So I just, I don't know, I just really appreciate your the way your brain works and the things that you want to dig into. And um, I just kind of wondered if you could tell folks who might not be familiar with your podcast, like, how do you come to these topics? Thank you so much. Yeah. And I think... Um, I mean, the Reconstruction episode makes me think, you know, A, it's the way Jamel's brain works is um, we're just so lucky to have his brain in the world. And B, I think what I love about that episode and the kind of, you know, um, pre-1980s content that the show has been leaning more toward lately is that it's like, it's, it's just always a gossipy, surreal very tabloidy story, no matter how far you go back in history. And I think one of the things that's important to me is is showing people that like we don't study history because it's refined or because it makes us, you know, intellectual. We do it because it's fun and because people make the same mistakes at incredibly regular intervals over and over. And <laughs> it's, you know, it's endlessly entertaining. I think that costume dramas really fall short because they think we want to see people being dignified, you know, and like reading a letter in a wide shot and being like, good, tell Edmund I won't come. And it's like, no, show me, give me like the John Adams miniseries treatment where we get like slutty Ben Franklin in a bath with his mistress in France Uh refusing to do diplomacy because he's having sex because that really happened. (laughs) 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 i could not agree more and it makes me think of a miniseries that i just watched they apparently did a second season of a very british scandal Mm. um and it's about the argyles the the argyle divorce and i'm like this is what i want to see i want to see that like this woman took a picture with her lover while she was giving him a blowjob and it was uh, it just like ruined the country. <laughs> like that's what I want to know about—the <laughs> blowjob that ruined the country. Yeah, um, and just that these are these are all real people, you know. And I think we feel less alone is another thing when you know, even like slutty Ben Franklin. I'm just like, you know what? Like you're a person. I'm a person. 
all of history is just people doing what seemed like a good idea at the time. And I think that can make us feel less alienated from ourselves, too. Yeah, I have to say, um, there was something that you wrote for BuzzFeed back, I think it was a few years ago, about Anna Nicole Smith. Yeah, and like five years ago. Yeah, I loved that article. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, it really was like very interesting to see how you kind of like laid out sort of what the common perception of her was at like different moments. And like there, the two, the things that really struck me too was like sh showing sort of like what her like the magazine cover that she had had at the beginning of her career towards the end of mm. her career. And um, I just thought that was so interesting. And I, and I was wrapped up in her too. Don't get me wrong, but I just love how you have this ability to, and you do this on the podcast, but I just remember this article being sort of my first um, foray into your work, if you will. But um, just the way that you're able to sort of like take what we sort of generally knew about something, but then like go even further into it and re-examine it. And I just think that's such a, a wonderful thing that you do in your work. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. And I think, you know, I now that I podcast, kind of that's where my energy goes most of the time. And so I feel like the stuff that I would have written in the past, now I just, I say, which I love, yeah. but I also, I feel, it makes me feel more nostalgic for when I used to write these long pieces that I feel like, I always felt like I was kind of like just exhausting the reader over time because I feel like the arguments I was making were often relatively simple, but just things that people like had a lot of like defensiveness around. And for me, the thing with Anna Nicole Smith was like, if you're a young single mom who's like really struggling to support herself and like working her way up in this incredibly dedicated way, like through the echelons of increasingly higher class strip clubs in Houston and this very old, can't physically harm you, incredibly rich guy, like is lobbying aggressively to give you a lot of his money. Like mm -hmm. what was she supposed to do? Like what, did, what is her response supposed to have been to that? Right. And I feel like that's just so evident, but I, it, I think you, it takes time to kind of soften a reader toward kind of allowing themselves to be like, well, yeah, I would have taken the money. Like I'm not, not everyone would have, but my God, I would have. Right. Absolutely. Right. And that's something that you, again, like you're so deft at doing in your writing and in your podcasting is pointing out the, the ways that we tend to villainize people without humanizing them first. Mm. And so you're able to humanize a lot of these situations, which makes people question like, yeah, why was I so mad about that? <laughs> like, what like, she's a single mom who's trying to get get by in life. If she hadn't become a model, we wouldn't have never. She's like millions of women out there that we would never have heard about. Yeah, if she had not taken her career to the next level. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think that you're you're right that we have to kind of question our own um, how how complicit we are in villainy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> And also that everyone is connected to O.J. Simpson because Anna Nicole Smith was in the, the Naked Gun Two and a Half, I think. Yes. I mean, again, <laughs> we've got the new when an when an angel gets its wings, and now we have a new <laughs> Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game 
with OJ Simpson. Yeah. I mean, he's on Twitter. He's just like, he's going to, he's, I just picture him like holding on to like a rope attached to a helicopter shouting, I'm still relevant. (laughs) (laughs) I I have not even processed the fact that he's on Twitter. True. It's been years and I still. No, it's unprocessable. (laughs) It's like we're having an epidemic. We're having a pandemic, in fact, and OJ Simpson is tweeting about it. Like somehow that's the weirder part. Yeah, God. completely. This is this is the world that we now inhabit, and I don't know how to feel about it most days. But <laughs> there's a lot of people on Twitter that I'm like, "Huh, you still really?" <laughs> now, I obviously we are a big part of the Sarah Marshall fan club. We could do this all day. I feel like we owe it to the person who sent us a question to maybe read it, um, <laughs> even though I'd rather just do this and just keep talking <laughs> with you. Um, but that's another way that we can just talk to you is through this question. So, Millie, do you want to lay it on us? Yes, I shall. Hi, Millie and Danielle. I love the podcast and can't thank you enough for getting me to watch movies that I've never heard of or haven't seen in a while. I've noticed that a lot of TV I'm watching is about ripped from the headlines kind of stories The Dropout, The Girl from Plainville, The Thing About Pam, a lot of them are also based on podcasts. Coincidence? But I also remember that documentary about Lorena Bobbitt that came out a couple of years ago, and it really focuses on how much we didn't know about that story, or the Monica Lewinsky show that really made it about her point of view. I guess my question is, With all of these movies and TV shows focusing on recent stories, do you think there's going to be some kind of reckoning in 20 years about how we didn't know the real story? Is it ever even a good idea to base movies and TV on real-life stories that are super complicated or still evolving? Thank you for all that you do and for making my neighbors think I'm weird as I'm laughing out loud while listening and walking my dog. Anita. Wow. Thanks, Anita. We love to make people think everyone's weird. Um, (laughs) This is a good question because I've been watching some of these shows and, Mm -hmm. you know, movies and documentaries. And I think the same exact thing. Like, I lived through a lot of this and didn't have any of this information. I also think, too, that, that, God, I don't, I was actually trying, thinking about this the other day. When this started, I, and I think I, we were trying to remember this about, we were talking about that documentary, Wild Wild Country. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. That came on Netflix. And yeah, about that ha- was huge. Huge yeah. documentary. Um, and I feel like sort of kickstarted a lot of the kind of stuff that's going on right now. There's so many, like, um, I just watched one about Von Dutch, the uh, Von Dutch yeah. brand. Uh, but there, I felt like that was kind of like one of the, the first in the modern era to kind of take it there to this new, we all have this interest now in this kind of stuff. Um, as evident by the amount of documentaries that they're making, right? But I actually never remembered Wild Wild Country, even though it happened during my lifetime, I like never remembered it. And so um, when I read this question, I was like, oh my God, this is perfect because I, I feel like I was just thinking the same thing. So Sarah, I know it's a lot to chew on, but w- you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I have multiple conflicting thoughts, as always. Um, I mean, I recently really enjoyed watching The Dropout, and I had the experience of watching it the way I think a lot of people did, of being like, I already know exactly what's going to happen, 
And I'm coming to the story not because I'm curious exactly, but because like I know what the story beats are and I want to see them be hit. So it's like, it's kind of like seeing a star is born when you're like, I've seen all the other versions of a star is born. And now I am watching the one with Lady Gaga in it. And I wonder, you know, what kind of beats will hit and how we'll hit them. And I, and so with the dropout, I, you know, because I can't do anything halfway, like I've watched each episode several times. I've kind of thought quite a bit about it. I um, have compared it, you know, thinking about the accuracy of what is being depicted to kind of, you know, the 8 million other versions of the Theranos story that are now available. And, you know, there are ways that it creates scene um, and it expresses ideas through scene in a way that, you know, didn't literally happen, but is fairly conventional for for this kind of media. And which I have mixed feelings about because I think, you know, I think Scorsese is like surprisingly extremely faithful to source material in a way people maybe don't realize. And I think movies like Goodfellas and Casino are really great demonstrations of like how you can just take the literal truth and not try and, you know, push it through the kind of Hollywood Velveeta machine at all. And you're going to end up with something really great because people, you know, react well to things that actually happened a lot of the time. Yeah, when when we did Wolf of Wall Street on the podcast, I was actually, when I was doing research for it, I was so surprised about how much of that actually happened. Like a lot of the sensational stuff that I was like, oh my God, this has to be some kind of like artistic license. And I was like, actually, no, they were that crazy. Uh, yeah. So I totally know what you yeah. mean. And there's like, I mean, I think there's stuff in Casino that's actually toned down because there's a degree yeah. of mobster <laughs> violence that like doesn't really translate to a narrative arc. Yeah. Um, where you're like, God, this this Pesci character just came in fully unhinged, didn't he? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we, we could talk about clipping off fingers, but we can't show clipping off fingers. Like, exactly. there's a yeah. line. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, and then, and with Theranos, and like, and then there's changes. Like, for example, in reality, John Carreyrou's editor was an Italian-American guy, and which kind of makes more sense about why he would tell a long anecdote about Sicily. Um, but in The Dropout, his editor is played by Lisa Gay Hamilton. And I'm like, well, I really love all these scenes of this kind of classic newspaper guy and his editor, who is played not by another white guy who's yelling at him about how he needs pictures of Spider-Man, but is (laughs) a woman of color who he is very respectful towards and who also has to explain journalism to him because we don't trust the audience, but who is able to... (laughs) to do it in a role that's very satisfying. Mm -hmm. So I feel like basically, and then I have to speak to how I personally feel about this, which is that I am a junkie. I need more Theranos content. I need it every day (laughs) until I'm ready to move on. And I think that um, we need to put more faith in the audience to enjoy the drama of reality. But I also think that, um, I think I just, it's always, it's always going to be ethically, it's always going to be ethically a little bit squishy to some degree to try and depict real people, especially if this is a recent story that there is a rabid desire for, which can make it harder to kind of gauge what, what's ethical to do. Mm -hmm. And also you're going to have less information if you don't wait 20 years until some of the bodies start, you know, standing up and walking around. But I think also... If you're producing a series in an atmosphere that has like 50 other p- 
pieces of media about the same story. I think that's actually good because I think it's it's great for an audience to be able to treat what you do not as definitive or the truth, but a an attempt to depict the truth. And then you can go find more if you want more. I could not I could not agree with that more. I think that it's um it's interesting as someone who read Bad Blood the book and kind mm-hmm. of followed the magazine articles that I was so excited about watching the dropout for that for the same reasons that you've just laid out. And I think it's true that you kind of have to trust the audience um, to be able to figure out where some of the artistic licenses, but you know, where we're staying true to the story. And I think that in terms of like Anita's question, you know, I don't know that we I don't know that it's a bad idea to kind of base these stories on real life because that is how we learn about a lot of Mm. this information. And it also depends on who's willing to talk and when. A lot of players and a lot of stories are not forthcoming until, you know, the person who wronged them has died or until they Mm -hmm. get, you know, to a certain place in their own life where they feel more confident and more comfortable and, you know, where it's kind of blown over a little bit and is not as sensational. So I think that it's... There's no way we can ever know everything that happened inside of any story. Um, so we may as well depict what we can while we can. And who's mm. who's this? I mean, there'll, there'll be, I guarantee there will be another version of the dropout that comes out in 25 years. And yeah. it'll have a whole and new, I'll like, watch it. and I'll watch it. I'll watch it. And they'll just be like, and then we found out this. And like, I had no idea until I watched that, <laughs> that, that series that, she had kind of like gone to Burning Man and found herself and reinvented right. herself and had a baby. And like, I didn't know any of that. So I think there's always little nuggets that you can glean depending on what type of media you're ingesting. Yes, this is, I'm going to use a, the classic, I'm going to use a stoner metaphor, which is there's always more nugs. There's always a nug you <laughs> forgot. <laughs> it's somewhere in the house. There's a little well, crumb in your keyboard. <laughs> well, did they do that? Like, do you remember um, the Paradise Lost documentaries? Yeah. With, yeah. With West Memphis 3. They updated that at some point, didn't they? Right. Yep. And I thought that was a really interesting move because I thought, okay, well, obviously everybody is a lot older and new information has come to the surface. So why not? I mean, if they have to update the Tiger King at some point because we found out new info. I I don't know. I might be on board for that. Who knows? But I I do like this idea, though, of having, you know, somebody kind of come in and tell a different side of it or a different story. And then maybe if if it is like history is still working itself out, if they have to come back to it later, that might be like something I'd watch. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even The Staircase, which has been evolving for, what, like 20 years? Right. There's a new, new update on that every year, it seems. There's a whole <laughs> new like view on that case. Um, and I think that there's... What's weird, too, and what I like about this question is I think that there's there's no way that we can really say that we even need to have a reckoning with these stories. I think that, you know, and again, something that I truly love about your podcast, um, you know, the You're Wrong About podcast, is that we can always have more perspectives on what happened through the lens of our own interests and experience. So, you know, like you said, John Carreyrou's um, editor was this Italian guy, but I want to hear about this story through the lens of like a woman who might have picked up on something that none of these guys did. (laughs) Or like, why is she, you know, I just, I want to hear more perspectives. And so I don't think there's ever, 
I don't think that we need to reckon with any of these stories as long as it's not misinformation. I think that more perspectives are always valid. Right. There's such a difference between like a good faith effort to depict what happened with the information you have, which also I love that I think as they were filming the dropout, they were integrating trial testimony into scenes that they were doing. So they were like writing it, you know, right till the very end um, and still, you know, and then once that was, you know, fully cooked, then stuff kept coming out. Stuff is still coming out and will keep coming out as presumably people continue to implicate each other. That's one of the ways. Um, But yeah, I think there's such a difference between doing the best you have with the information you have uh, and alternatively looking at a story and being like, let's do the evil woman story. That's evergreen. People always want to buy that. We're doing evil woman today. (laughs) (laughs) That to me is the Lorena Bobbitt documentary because growing up, all I heard was the jokes about this woman who cut her husband's penis off. And never once in my youth did I hear about the abuse that she suffered. And so you're right. It's like the evil woman is always there for you. There's always a trope that you can dig into if that's your perspective, if you want to put it on, I don't even know if this network exists anymore, but like, um, what was that network for dudes? Like stuff oh, spike, or something? Oh, stuff. <laughs> spike. <laughs> spike. Yeah. Spike. yeah. <laughs> like there's going to be a spike perspective always that has that <laughs> bent. Um, but I do think that it's, I don't know, I kind of, I like seeing these multiple perspectives years later because I think people feel more comfortable being more honest Um And uh, truly, there are a lot of things that come out right after some case has broken or right after some news event has happened. And it feels a little boring to me because there is no Mm. perspective other than, well, this is what happened. And you're like, yeah, but what else? There's like you haven't talked to any of the victims. You haven't talked to any of the Mm -hmm. you you haven't had the, the benefit of time to really give yourself space to explore what the actual real story is here. Yeah. So I kind of appreciate that. And Sarah, I was curious on your thoughts on this because I, mm. I was listening to the episode you did with Dana Schwartz about the um, medieval torture devices. Oh yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and um, you, you made this like surprisingly point. funny one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, you made this point about sort of why people gravitate towards like the macabre or horror or something. Mm. And maybe this is sort of related. But um, do, what do, what are your thoughts on sort of why there's been kind of a proliferation of this kind of rip from the headline stuff. I mean, do you think it's like a new thing that we're all experiencing? Like why suddenly there's so many of these kind of like documentaries about true cases? I mean, is it like a Reddit? Is it true crime? Is it, Mm. do you have any thoughts on on that? I mean, I suspect that true crime will just always expand to fill whatever space is available to it. And that that's what we're seeing really. Cause like, I, I'm convinced that true crime is just like, it has always been with us. It right. It's never had a boom. Like the market has changed and it has had more platforms to ooze onto. And I use ooze in a positive way. Um, yes. <laughs> As we but, always did. Yes. <laughs> but like, like oil, you know, in the movie Giant. But, um, <laughs> but you know, in, you know, in the 18th century, there were uh, Staffordshire, murder scenes there were these lovely you know beautifully painted beautifully crafted um porcelain little dioramas of famous murders that relatively wealthy people could own and display and look at so like clearly we have not 
invented anything new here. We just have new platforms to look at it on. Um, but I mean, I and then also, you know, speaking to that, I grew up watching Lifetime movies just con- constantly. Yeah, and a Thank lot of you. those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And look at me now. And um, and a lot of those, you know, some of them were Lifetime originals. And a lot of them were basically like TV movies from the 80s and 90s that had come to live at the Lifetime ranch and be reared over and over. So like, and, and that was a ton of rip from the headline stuff. Mm-hmm. People either, you know, going by their real names like Betty Broderick or a movie that made a huge impression on me, which was... Um, the Lori Kellogg story, which was a pseudonym and which starred um, Jenny Garth as a woman yes. who <laughs> got married very young to a guy who was very abusive and eventually conspired with some teenagers she knew to kill him. And I just like that movie really lodged in my consciousness. And one where I think like Cheryl Ladd got framed for drug possession and had to like be a mom in prison. And she like befriended this younger woman who had a baby in prison and then they took her baby away. And like, I wasn't learning about that in school. I was learning about it from no. Lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the other point is that it's the, the, the relevance of these stories and the importance of these stories is not from a reckoning point of view because how else are we going to know about this stuff? There, there are only certain people who are focusing on things that are actually interesting about the world mm. that don't seem newsworthy to the people who are making the news. I want to know this yeah. stuff. I want to I want to see the there was a Meredith Baxter Bernie Lifetime movie um, where she was I forget the name of she kind of like ended up sliding down a shower and just sitting and crying in the shower. And I'm like, I want to know that it's possible for me to cry in the shower. That's what I yes. need when I'm nine years old. <laughs> I need to know that like women go through this shit. I need to know that this is an emotion that's available to me. It's, yeah. it's, it's important to the scope of our lives to kind of see how people are are living through crimes and living through injustice. I think it really is helpful in lifetime was. Yeah. Lifetime was an incredible mix of like, I would say 85% women either committing relatable crimes or (laughs) like being framed for crimes, something being, you know, something terrible happening to them essentially in in a patriarchal world. And then 15% just fully unhinged movies about women who got to be murderers like <laughs> Stephanie Zimbalist and the babysitter yeah. Yeah. and that one with Tracy Gold where she conned yeah. her way into college <laughs> well then now they've got I don't know if you've been keeping up with them but you know they've got their own kind of movie network and there's an app and I don't know if you know about the all the Vivica A. Fox movies that they're doing no with like, oh my god it is like oh yeah I think it's <laughs> Brilliant. I think it's brilliant that they're doing multiple films starring Vivica Fox, and it's always like the wrong blank, like the wrong <laughs> caterer, the wrong babysitter, the wrong whatever. And it's to me, I think they're like, I don't know, I'm a cult movie fan. They kind of seem cult movie ish. It's like it's like this entire series of like these, you know, lifetime films with with her and it, it it's always like crazy salacious, you know, stuff. And I just I love that they kind of like kept it going and now they're kind of like <laughs> kind of leaning into it a little bit. I appreciate that. So Yeah. I you know, I gotta I gotta check it out. i I will always defend <laughs> Lifetime. I think it made me who I am. And yeah, and then speaking of, you know, the shows that we're seeing now, these, you know, these limited series, um Specifically, I feel like it feels like something new because it's a new format for TV to be reaching us in. And I think 
often like you have more time, you have more money, you have I, maybe not better actors. Nobody's better than Stephanie Zimbalist, but like there's more resources going into it. And I think that's new. And I think that's a really positive development. But like Lifetime is, has always been on this beat. So, yeah, yeah, right. I, I, I agree. I think that it's it was always it's always strange to me in the past few years when people are like surprised that true crime is popular. I'm like, but it's always like, been popular what? to a lot of us weirdo. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like, like what, what what paperbacks were you looking at when you were loitering, yeah. loitering at the grocery store with your mom? Yeah. I also think, too, like, there's also, to me, it seems that, like, as much as we've all loved this for so long, but there's also this new generation of people who I think have grown up with sort of the most information they could ever get Mm -hmm. at one time. So they're, like really into the um the fact finding part of it so mm-hmm. like i know of so many people that go to reddit and like look up crimes on reddit and so they can like just talk about details and people like doing like really hard research on on things that i'm like it's fascinating to me because i mean i never we obviously never had that ability when we were growing up to like congregate and become yeah. detectives with other people about stuff we liked you know what i mean no, or like you you could, but you had to be like a full-time after-school detective like Shelby Wu. Like you couldn't just yeah. dip into it on the internet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a dedicated thing. <laughs> Full-on ghostwriter about it. Like you had to have a haunted typewriter and three yes. friends. Yeah, you yeah. gotta have a ghost. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. I truly cannot thank you enough. And I, again, cannot tell you how how big a fans we are of, of your work, everything you do. We w- would love to have you come back anytime to answer any questions. Yes, yes. I would. And, I would um, love to come back anytime, too. And this was, I mean, yeah, just pure joy. Thank you for being pure joy. Aww. Thank you as well. Honey in the ears, folks. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Oh my gosh, so great to have Sarah on the on the pod. I mean, that to me is like the way people react to seeing Harry Styles. That's how <laughs> I feel about getting to talk to Sarah Marshall. I know. It's like, I, I listen to her podcast, I'm like, God, I'm so jealous that I'm not this eloquent and intelligent. And, you know, she just like has this, she radiates this like, I don't know, this like very authentic voice. And I just love that she's, tackling these kind of big questions and i don't know i think she's doing a lot of good for people and so fun so funny and so warm and just charming and just as wonderful as you think she is going to be she is well these movies we got this week are just as wonderful as you think great segue (laughs) (laughs) i think we have a lot to answer for with our choices and our theme this week so we both have a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> oh my god. You you said at the end of the last episode that you could not wait to do this. So it's finally here. How do you feel? Are you ready to fucking explode the speakers right now? I'm so ready. Okay. Why don't you tell <laughs> the listeners what the theme is this week? This theme is it's one we've done before. Yes. Correct. So this Correct. is this is the theme that brought us to the now legendary response that Millie had to Hereditary. <laughs> and we're going there again, folks, because this week our theme is 
I wish you were never born. That's right. We are bringing it back for you. A theme that is usually about siblings, right? That's kind of how we established it the first time. Yeah. About family. Right. But just this idea of like, you can't choose your family. And uh, sometimes we, we have... Wonderful moments with family, wonderful moments with brothers and sisters and whatnot. But then sometimes it's it's a it's a little gnarly and uh, <laughs> to varying degrees. Um, and honestly, I can't I cannot stress this enough. When 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 I picked my movie, I think I picked it first. Okay, oh, you you would not you, listeners, you would not believe the alacrity with which Millie said her film. <laughs> When I said, well, should we do this theme again? And she just went, boom. Like, it was boom. just ready to go. Yes, Listen, we should do this theme. I was, I, was, I was ready to place my film in any theme, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, that's how much I wanted to talk about it. I was like, yo, like, we can, put, we can make a theme for, for this 365. But then the best part came when you chose your film <laughs> as the double feature, and I screamed laughing. I'm not joking. I screamed laughing because I thought... What a fucked up pairing of movies. Like, that is so brilliant. I love it so much. Like I said, we both have a lot to answer for. (laughs) (laughs) Because I also was like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm going to pick for this this theme as well. Yes. I mean, considering kind of like a high key and low key or something, there's there's two (laughs) ends of a spectrum. I don't know what to say about that. But um, I think it's so twisted to sit and watch these two movies together, which I basically did. I basically yeah. watched them together and um, it was so fun. I watched them on an airplane, by the way. <laughs> really freaking out the squares by yes, watching I mean, these on well, an airplane. And listen, let me tell you right now, I can't imagine what somebody was thinking behind me as I'm like, oh, I'm watching You Can Count On Me, you know, that's a movie, a plain movie, sure. But then to watch Basket Case afterwards, they're like, what the fuck is wrong with this woman? Like, she really downshifted. I can't um, believe there was an air marshal intervention or, like, the TSA <laughs> waiting for you at the gate or something. Like, you you really escaped a possible situation there. <laughs> like, this woman is watching two completely different movies together <laughs> And we don't understand why, and she has to be put in a detention center because um, we can't we can't understand it. And both of them are making my child cry. <laughs> I know. Well, listen, I I haven't seen your film. Um, God, it's been so long since I've seen your film. Probably since around the time it came out, and um, it's so fucking good. I can't wait for you to talk about it. Well, I'm going to jump right in because my film for our theme of I Wish You Were Never Born was released in the year 2000. It was written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan. And my movie is You Can Count on Me. I got a postcard from you from Alaska. Yeah, yeah. I was out there for a little while. That was in the fall, Terry. I was in jail for a little while. What? I have such... Just fond memories of this movie, because I also hadn't seen it in a while, but it stuck with me, this relationship between brother and sister, the relationships in the film to the people in the town, like it just was one of those that stuck with me. And I didn't know that, or forgot, that Martin Scorsese 
produced it, but was one of the executive producers on this movie. Mm, interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah. And just to get into a little bit of background, um, Kenneth Lonergan is by now very well known, um, but he started out as a playwright. He was a playwright as well as a screenwriter um, and director. He's won tons of awards, um, has some great plays like This Is Our Youth, Lobby Hero. Um, he also directed Manchester by the Sea, which was nominated for a ton of awards. And he's just he just has this ability as a director to tap into the worst emotional core of what we have to offer as people and present it in a beautiful and delicate way. And I just always appreciate that about him. Uh, and there's also a small role in this film for Jay Smith Cameron, who most of you by now know as Jerry in Succession, um, but has also been in beautiful little TV shows like Rectify and um, is also a, not only a famed theater actor in her own right, but is also married to Kenneth Lonergan. Oh, interesting. I, You know what? I've, ne- I've never seen Rectify or Succession. Oh, <gasps> Lord, oh, I don't no. know that there's ever a good time to dig into those shows, but <laughs> put them on the list. Re- Rectify is, is, even though it's TV, it will be one of those TV shows that is stressful and traumatizing. Like one of my regular suggestions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just stressful, but beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. Um, and very, very underrated. So my... My one-sentence synopsis of this film is the reappearance of a wayward younger brother forces a single mother to question not only the meaning, but the real-life application of love. Mm, That's a good one. I was really trying to think about how do you sum up this movie in one sentence? It's very difficult. Um, But for a kind of more, more expansive summary... This movie is about Sammy, who's played by Laura Linney, um, and she's this older sister to Terry. Uh, She's a single mom who hasn't told her very precocious and adorable eight-year-old son much about his father beyond he's not a nice person. She she works at a bank. She's lived in the same house and the same small town her whole life. Um, And her brother, Terry, couldn't get out of there fast enough. He's the exact polar opposite of her. Um, Mm -hmm. And he, but he still finds himself really needing Sammy. Like he needs his sister often for money, um, but also mm. for kind of like an unquestioning affection or for like a tiny hit of stability every now and then. Right. And I think that the reason I, I picked this movie for the theme of I Wish You Were Never Born is that there's not like an outright animosity in this movie, but a lot of siblings bond over shared childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. But when those shared experiences are painful, how does that translate to a relationship as adults? So for me, I wish you were never born. Sometimes sometimes it turns into I wish I was never born. Or sometimes it just translates as like, I wish I was not thrown into this dynamic with you. <laughs> like right. I just wish we didn't have to be these people doing this thing. Um, right. And a big part of that is that in true Kenneth Lonergan style, this movie starts with a good old New England tragedy, which is that both of their parents die in a car accident. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So they are instantly bonded by this traumatic event. I'm just curious about your 
relationship with were you the oldest or was your brother older right he's older right yeah but Corey's older than me by a year and a half okay and then i have three younger siblings who i never lived with or grew up with okay got it were so were you did you have like um i'm so curious about i never had brothers um and this is part of the movie for me that i think is really interesting it's just the brother and sister dynamic and i know you've talked about Corey before on the podcast but um, did you see sort of any uh, similarities between you and your relationship and, and theirs, Sammy? Oh, and um, completely, yeah. completely. Yeah. And he listens to this podcast, so he's going to hear this. And it's oh, fine because hey. I've said it. <laughs> hey, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I have said it to his face. Um, but yeah, there's that dynamic. And we talk about it sometimes because it's very strange that I'm the younger sibling, but I've always kind of had to act like the older sibling. Yeah. And I've always yeah. been the more responsible one. I've always been the more, you know, direct one. I've always been the one who kind of sucked up most of the trauma. <laughs> and so we've talked about that a lot because I we have had this dynamic. This dynamic felt very, very real to me. Um, you know, Corey kind of floated through life for a while and didn't know what he wanted to do and let, you know, women take care of him. And, you know, he was just kind of like that guy. And I think there are a lot of that guys, like that's not a condemnation of him. I just think that there's a lot of that guy out there <laughs> who's just yeah. kind of like, I don't know, like, I don't want to do this. So I'll just do whatever. Yeah, I know. I know. And like, that's a big part of the film, too, is is sort of like the dynamic between the quote unquote responsible one, the the sibling that stays in the town and has the kid and has the house versus the one that goes off um, into the universe and sort of just, you know, has more of a free spirit, kind of takes jobs wherever. When he when he mentioned when um, the Mark Ruffalo character mentioned he'd been in Alaska, I was like, ooh, Danielle went to Alaska. That's cool. Well, but that's what's also strange about my dynamic with Corey is that right. I somehow was the responsible one and I still was also the person who went out in the world and did a bunch of weird shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of both of these characters. <laughs> Yeah, no, and that, and I'll, I'll get it. I'm sure we'll get into it in a second. But yeah, the, the sort of roles that the two of them have in the family, and then you know, sort of how they're. It's not great, like for either one of them. Like where she might be the responsible one, but she has her own drama too. Don't get it twisted. And I just, but I just love thinking about um, siblings and I was, I'm fascinated by you and Corey's relationship again. Cause I didn't, I didn't have brothers. So yeah, um, I just wondered about that. Oh yeah. We're going to, and we will definitely get into it. Sorry, Corey, but we'll definitely get into it. And, um, <laughs> but I think you're, you're, what you hit upon there too, is something that is true of all older siblings or responsible siblings, which is that like, it's not always fun for us. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a lot of kind of unseen pressure that comes with being, the one who everyone turns to to do things like I just yeah. I'm feeling it a lot now um, in my own life because mm -hmm. I've you know again I've moved home I'm moving my grandmother into my house and it just comes with a lot of management and a lot of responsibility and mm -hmm. I'm happy to take it on but I also there have just been moments where I feel like Corey in particular like resents me for coming back and being that person and mm he doesn't hesitate to tell me that. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that fucking sucks that you feel that way. Um, yeah. Because in my mind, I'm just trying to do something good and that will make it easier for all of us. Um, 
but sometimes for him, I think he feels like I don't take him seriously or like he's not pulling his weight or doing as much or whatever. I don't want to make him feel that way. But again, it's like when you're the responsible sibling, you can't wait to act. (laughs) Like things, shit has to get done and you can't wait for someone's feelings to feel, you know, to, to be on par with what you need to do. Yeah, but at the same time, too, I feel that. I feel like, and it's weird to say that, but it's like, I feel like there's this, um, I don't know, there's this notion that, of stability, right? Like, who is quote-unquote stable? Like, how do you measure stability? Is it that you own a house? Is it that you, you know, aren't doing heroin? I don't know. What does that mean? What does that look like? And for me, sometimes I feel... And this is just, you know, kind of getting into the weeds a little bit about my family. But, like, I sometimes feel like I'm the non-stable one because I don't, you know, have kids or I'm not married and I don't have a family. And there are times where I sort of resent that within my sister, that she lives so close to my parents and that, you know, maybe they see me as this fucking freak that's like roaming the world with no ties and that I'm irresponsible, that I I wouldn't come for, you know, a big serious event because I'm out in the world having a podcast and watching <laughs> movies or some shit. If so this I podcast is preventing you from going to your parents' <laughs> wedding anniversary, then we got some fucking problems to work out. That bitch is wild. <laughs> she's She's got no ties. She has a film podcast. Well, she's fucked up. No, I... Yeah. No, but I understand what you mean because then the flip side of that is that you're still the older sibling who everyone yeah. turns to and is like, well, you'll do this because you don't have a family or kids or whatever. Right. And it's a weird dynamic to be in where you're like, I don't feel like you see me as responsible or as, you know, settled as my sister, but yet I'm naturally going to inherit a lot of the responsibility of this family as you age and as things change because I don't have that. Yeah. (laughs) It's very weird. Well, I know. And like, that's why I think ultimately we should, as as a society, drop the fucking bullshit about who's you know, what stability and what responsibility and what growth sort of looks like in that very yes. traditional way, because it's like, you know, it's complicated as you, as, as you'll see in your film. I mean, it's like, just because you own a house and have a kid doesn't mean you have your shit together. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of times people and that, the that responsibility for that person is probably re- really affects them too. And, and makes them feel boxed in and limited. And so let's just drop all the bullshit and (laughs) like, let's stop like judging people about this. Right. So anyway, and let's stop, let's stop conscripting people into these familial roles, like learn who they are and what they want and how they can help you or not help you and go from there. Let's stop assuming that someone, because they are a certain way wants to, or can take on the whole responsibility of your fucking family. This is very personal to me, but yeah. I think it also applies to a lot of people. Um, Cause you know, I, I, I turn into my baser self when I'm pushed into that corner. Um, and I don't yeah. like it. I don't like it. I don't like shouting like a teenager that I also want to have a life. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But one thing about this movie that, I really dig, and it kind of helps us set up this dynamic of who these who these people are to each other. Um, we don't learn much of anything about what happened to these kids directly after the car crash. 
so we don't know if a family member took them in or what, but that, but you know, we kind of, it's easy to get the impression that at a certain point, Sammy took care of them both or from that point forward had always taken care of them, even if they did live with a family member. And we also learned that both Sammy and Terry have a shared ownership of this house. Um, So even though she lives in it and is raising her son in it, it's it's a house that belongs to both of them. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning of the movie, Terry writes a letter to Sammy and she keeps this big file folder with all of his letters. It's pretty thick. Um, and it, that was the first part that gave me pause because yes, it's the year 2000, so we weren't all inundated with our electronics yet. But writing a letter is so selective. Like there's there's so much that she can't glean about his life beyond what mm-hmm. he's willing to put on the page. Yeah. And Terry's a mess. Like Terry, Terry is a sweaty mess. He's very quick <laughs> to anger. Um, he's the kind of guy who will smoke pot in the bathroom on the bus that he's taking to see them. Um, <laughs> he has a very sparse apartment with like an old speaker for a coffee table. Um <laughs> Like he's he's borrowing money from his girlfriend as he has one foot out the door. Yeah. And then what's wild is in that scene where you first meet Terry and he's talking to Gabby Hoffman, who's playing his girlfriend, um, Sheila. He said he makes a statement that I think is really indicative of who this character is. He says, I'm not the guy that everyone says I am. Mm. So he knows how he's perceived, but he's not really willing to change it. So even right. though it's and it's 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 not even clear if he actually likes himself, but he's just not willing to make any movement in that way beyond I'm not what you think I am. It's still a very defensive posture for an adult to have. Mm-hmm. So Terry immediately has to grapple with the fact that all of us who have eventually come home have to deal with as he goes to visit his sister to ask her for money Um how weird it is to come home to a small town when your early life was soaked in tragedy and you're right. not quite a fully formed adult. So mm. he like feet, as soon as his feet leave the bus and hit that small town pavement, he's seeing the fucking cop that he's known his whole life. And like, mm. he's just in it immediately. And he's so tense and uncomfortable. And I think that Mark Ruffalo, who plays Terry, um, it's so inhabits that discomfort so well. Like he's just such a great actor in this in this movie. Um, because he he's never comfortable and it just radiates off of him. He wasn't comfortable with Sheila, he's not comfortable here. But it's just I don't know, I just it's something I really loved and appreciated about his his acting. Um and I also love when Sammy first sees him through the restaurant window. She's so excited to see him that she like waves at him with both hands. It's very cute. Oh, I know. I know. And she was like uh, baking him cookies and stuff like that when he, she was really excited to see him. Was this the movie that brought us Mark Ruffalo? Did we like, did he come into our lives with this movie? I can't remember. Yeah. He, he'd done some, some roles before that, but this is like, this is definitely the movie that shot him into the stratosphere. Okay, got it. Yeah, he was adorable in this oh, film. So adorable and so squirrely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this first scene in the restaurant, this first time that we see them together, is great. It is one of my. It's one of my favorite establishing scenes. Um, it's where we learn that they are very different and they are very tense together. They don't have an ease. And that, again, that's what I really loved about this movie is that so many film, so many films when they're portraying the sibling dynamic of adults, 
always go to that kind of jocular place where it's like, oh, we have inside jokes and we laugh and we poke at each other. And it's just like when we were kids. And I'm like, no, nah, it's not like that for most of us. Like some of you have that. A lot of us are like, no, we've been like looking at how to pay the bill since we were 17. Right. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. having real conversations for a very long time. And now we're fucking tired of each other. Uh, <laughs> so he kind of... You know, she's excited because she thinks he's going to stay for a while. And he's like, oh, you know, she's like, she's like, I don't know. She's like, well, I haven't heard from you in a while. And, you know, I was worried about you. And this is where he reveals to her that he was in jail in Florida because he got into a bar fight. So he was in jail for three months and couldn't write mm-hmm. to her. And she's mm-hmm. freaking out. And then he he asked to borrow some money. And his whole countenance here, like he's like, I'll pay you back, man. Like he talks to her like he would talk to a buddy. Right. Like, oh, I'll pay you back, man. And then he kind of goes to this anger place where he's like, oh, do you even want me to visit now? And he's so hurt so easily. And they're both very quick to anger. So it's like they're both still in that stunted little kid place with each other. Right. And it's something I can't stand because my own brother and I do this. And I hate it. It's like when I said, <laughs> when I, said I hate that it makes me kind of like our relationship sometimes pushes me back to my baser functions this is what i mean when you're like you're being direct and clear and they're reacting in a way that's very hurt and you're like this is all happening in your head i didn't say that and you're just pushed to this little kid place where suddenly you're fighting about how you said something instead of what you actually said oh yeah i mean listen i walk around in this world trying to act like i've got this like very um you know, healthy way of like arguing with people and having like confrontations. I'm like, I've been to therapy. I know how this works. Like I know how to have a confrontation. That all goes out the window when I'm with my sister. Like (laughs) we fight like fucking animals. Like we're going, well, fuck you. Well, fuck you then. And you're ugly and your hair sucks and blah, 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 blah. Like we're doing the things that we were doing when we were like, kids because it's like it's so primal like it's such a primal feeling when you're with your family to fight with them and you're like all emotional intelligence goes out the fucking window you're just like (laughs) throwing mud like you're just like whatever gets the job done to hurt this person i'm doing it you know completely it's so fucked it yeah, does not so feel fucked. good but it's also like you both are doing it like neither yeah. one of you and it, you're right like i feel like i have the emotional intelligence to like have a normal argument or discussion with somebody when i'm feeling a certain way right but my brother hasn't been through as much therapy as i've been through so he yeah. doesn't respond in the way that my therapist responds when i say this kind of shit to her or to my friends right. or to like he hasn't had therapy Right, so when I right. therapize or talk at him like that, he's just like, I'm going to remind you that you're a piece of shit. And I'm like, oh, you are also a piece of shit. And then yeah. that's where we have find our fucking commonality. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so crazy. <laughs> it's wild. And and this movie, what, what the scene does for me, and it's exactly what we're talking about here, is that Sammy is so weirdly unwilling to see Terry for who he is, like to the point where she still asks him if he goes to church. And... Terry is unwilling to see Sammy for who she is. <laughs> right. Because he's like, you're stable, you're cool, you'll give me money, you always do, like, whatever. You're ro- you'll roll with this. Yeah, yeah. I, the minute she said that, I was like, I'm going to say no on that church thing. That's not, I don't think that's happening for him. <laughs> Absolutely not. And as we find out in the film, she does kind of keep pushing it. But 
There's no way. But again, this is that unspoken thing that like maybe when they were kids, they went to church as a way to deal with the fact that both of their parents died in a car accident. And like, we don't know what role church played in their lives. But for whatever reason, Sammy held on to it. And Terry did not. Right, Um, right. So Terry does actually decide to say when he figures out that Sheila, his girlfriend, has tried to kill herself. And Mm. it kind of ends up being a good arrangement because Sammy needs some help with, with Rudy after school and... So Terry just kind of settles into this life with Sammy, but it's not like he reaches or meets her at her level. Right. Like he's at home watching Maury and smoking cigarettes and playing Rudy's Game Boy. And he like will rip up her plumbing and fuck it up and then get mad when she calls an actual plumber to fix it. Like he's just reenacting all this shit that he has clearly done with other women in his life. But now he's doing this with his sister. Yeah, and I think he had that moment, too, of, like, he was like, look, I can do a thing. Like, I can help you uh, because you think I'm just such a fuck-up. And, you know, basically, it was, like, his one moment where he thought he could, like, prove otherwise, and then it didn't work. And it it pissed him off, you know? At all. (laughs) He had to fuck it up their house. Yeah, And, yeah, it's really... And, it it, again, it's like he has a feeling of ownership over this place because this is where he grew up, but he clearly had no idea what he's doing. When I watched the movie this time, the thing that really hit me about how to understand Terry was looking at his relationship with Rudy Jr. And it's kind of like simultaneously watching him try to be the parent that he needed at Rudy's age, because he was Mm -hmm. kind of around Rudy's age when his parents died, but also watching him talk to this kid like he's a drinking buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Like he treats his eight-year-old like he's a drinking buddy. (laughs) And it's funny and scary at the same time because you're like, this child has no supervision when he's with his uncle. But also how adorable are they together? (laughs) I know. They had kind of this like paper moon scenario when they were like at the pool hall and they were hustling people or whatever. And that was... (laughs) <laughs> very adorable problematic but very adorable is so problematic and he's like his life there is really sad because he's like well what else am i gonna do i I can sit at the local bar and listen to mendocino and drink alone <laughs> <laughs> or i could go home and tell my nephew about what a fuck up piece of shit his dad was (laughs) even though his mom is never taught like he just crosses boundaries left and right with this kid i know and i had there's a moment too where i think sammy finally is like all right dude like it is not your job to fucking teach my kid about the ills of the world like he'll figure it out eventually but you know you don't need to give him these like hard truths and it made me stop as an aunt going, do I do that? Do I like, am I that kind of person that's like walking around with like my nephew being like, see this, this is good. This is what's going to fuck you up later in life. Just remember this, remember this for later, you know? Uh, and they're probably like, uh, why are you teaching me that? Like why? Not that I'm like doing what uh, Terry's doing, but you know, just in general, like I'm, I think my advice to the kids is is more coming from like my li- like lived experience as an adult being like well this is coming down the pike you better get ready for it like you're gonna get bullied and if you get bullied punch a guy in the face and my sister's like what don't do that like there's a different way of handling it and it's not you know maybe the way that you learned it right right 
Right. And I think there, there is this unspoken idea that Terry's kind of supposed to be the positive male influence in Rudy's life. Like, <laughs> yeah. he takes that upon himself, but he is not a positive influence in his own life. So, like, he, like yeah, he could teach this kid how to hammer a nail, but he right. also freaks everyone out in the process because he didn't tell anyone that the kid was going to be with him. So, Sammy's like, where's my fucking kid? And it's like, he doesn't have that balance. Yeah. And I feel like my, like... My role as a, as a, you know, an aunt or a godmother or whatever, I feel like my role when they were very little, like two and three, I'm like, I need to teach you about the world so you're prepared. Yeah. But then as I watch them grow up and just kind of learn their personalities, I'm like, okay, my role is just to support you as a person and yes. what you're into. Like if you, I want to be a, an open enough person with you that when you do start having questions about the world, you will come to me with them. Right. But exactly. I can't, I can't just make our relationship be based purely on terror Right. Like if you if you as a child naturally gravitate towards a construction site where you work with no protective equipment, <laughs> I will support that. But I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not going to like bring you there. <laughs> like when he, if you don't know what to do with a child if besides watch TV or take them to a bar and have them help you hustle pool, then you should err on the side of like just not damaging the kid further. Like just let him. It's less damaging to let him watch an extra hour of TV than to take yes. him to a fucking bar and teach him how to hustle pool and then actually get mad at him when he says he can't play. <laughs> oh, I know. Like there are multiple times in this movie where Terry's basically like calling his nephew a snitch. Yeah, and it's like you fucking snitched on me. Or like, man, you suck at this. You know what I mean? And you're like, wow. <laughs> I'm not that bad, thank God. Completely. And this is, and again, it just drives home how like unhinged Terry is in his emotional development. But then you realize yeah. he never had any. Like yeah. what this movie is trying to tell you is that this inciting incident that happened when their parents died, that is where his emotional progress stopped. Right. And Sammy, yep. too. We learn a lot about Sammy in this movie because Sammy's on her own journey. Ooh. And look, she starts to have an affair with her boss, who's played by Matthew Broderick. Oh and my he God. is so annoying as a boss. Oh, my God. One of the worst. Oh, he creeped me out. He grossed me out. I was like, Ferris Bueller has gone so far down. I'm like... <laughs> The, like, I could not stand him in this movie for so many reasons. For so many reasons. He brought back a lot of trauma to me of old bosses. Yes. <laughs> but he just, he's just annoying. Like, he is just that guy that's annoying. And she very slowly starts realizing it's one of those things, <laughs> those things where she realizes she first thinks that sleeping with him is the way to get what she wants. And then she realizes, oh, no, I want to be the boss. Like, I can right. do your job better than you and yep. less annoyingly. Um, but she's also having this real problem with with Bob, this guy that she has this on again, off again relationship with. And he proposes to her without even spending time with Rudy, which I find is very strange. Like, men, if you're dating single moms, don't propose to them without meeting the kid or hanging out with the kid. <laughs> Yeah. Like, that ain't going to work for anybody. <laughs> right. But she's, like, she's kind of stuck. Like, she's stuck in her life. She's not, she's not, like, deeply unhappy. She's just kind of immobilized. Right. And so she has these moments that feel like, to me, very Sammy moments. The first being that she's trying to figure out, she's in her bedroom smoking, <laughs> like, chain smoking mm -hmm. on the phone. And she's trying to figure out... Well, I can't call Brian because he's married. That's her boss. 
and I can't call Bob because I really don't like him. And this is all accompanied by um, like a Yo-Yo Ma cello suite. <laughs> and she's just like going through it. And I'm like, that, sometimes it'd be like that where you're just like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's me and Yo-Yo Ma. And I'm, I got nobody but myself and I don't trust myself to make a goddamn decision. <laughs> But then with the, it all, the, the next kind of really savvy moment for me, like brings all of that to a head because Kenneth Lonergan plays, also plays the priest in this film, her priest. And she tries to get him to talk to Terry. That doesn't really work out because, you know, he's like asking Terry if he actually thinks his life is important. And Terry's like, what the fuck, dude? And, yeah. <laughs> but she goes to him and she confides in him that she thinks she's in this situation with all of these men in her life. Because she feels sorry for them. It's like this huge revelation that is so downplayed in the film, but really stuck to me this time, where she's just like, yeah, I feel bad for all of them. And it shakes something really loose in her Mm -hmm. that starts the trajectory of the film going in a different way. And then all hell breaks loose when Terry (laughs) takes Rudy to meet his dad, because it turns out he just lives a couple of towns over. He's played by Josh Lucas, I will not ruin it, but I will say that there is a fist fight involved, and it reminded me of one of my favorite tweets that I've seen recently, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the tweet was basically, therapy is no longer good enough, I need to actually fight my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Like, everybody I knew sent me that tweet. Like, everybody I knew. I was like, we're all thinking the same thing, aren't we? (laughs) We all want to fight our dads. Like, if we can just, because they won't go to therapy. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah. let's meet them where we live where, meet them where they live and just fucking box it out yes exactly <laughs> but what I love about that scene and again I don't want to ruin it or ruin the end of the movie too much but Terry's response to that theme, to that scene as he's talking to of course Rudy instead of his sister he's talking to his 8 year old nephew he says a line which is so totally indicative of who this character is So he's packing his bags and he's mad about this fight. And he says, I fucked up a little bit, which I was totally ready to admit. So that line alone, you're like, oh, God, he lies to himself all the fucking time. Right. Yeah. Because he didn't admit it. But now he instantly backtracks to, well, I would have admitted it. Right. And that kind of shit drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. In an argument. (laughs) Yeah. I, I... It's so weird because I this was probably one of the first movies where I felt like I had been both Sammy and Terry, right? Those Mm -hmm. characters where I was like, because usually when you have this kind of film, like when you have like a family drama, when you have it between brothers and sisters or just siblings, there, there tends to be sort of like a very clear line between who's right and who's wrong, like who's the fuck up and who's not. Mm -hmm. And so you're always like, God, that little brother sucks. Like, why is he so irresponsible? But honestly, in this movie, and this is why this movie is so fucking good, is that you're like, oh, I could be both of these people. Like I can be, I can see, I can be enraged by what Terry does uh, but at the same time, I, I've also been in his position where he felt like he needed to like constantly legitimize his existence to his sister and how he's always like, you know, I deep down, I have some good intentions, even though I don't fucking know how to express them a lot of times in the right mm-hmm. ways. So it's like that 
moment where I was like, yeah, there's, I, I, I keep wavering back and forth between these two. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it, it, you're, you're right. Like, I think that is possibly why this film stuck with me for so long and why, like, watching it again, I felt the same exact thing. And I'll admit it. Like, I am, I am absolutely both of these characters and it sometimes doesn't feel great. You know, it does right. not feel great. And I think that one thing that this movie gets to the heart of is the frustration of trying to get your siblings to kind of see you for who you are and not who you were. Right. And I'm Ugh. guilty of that. I'm totally yeah. guilty of that. I'm like, my brother's always been this way, so I will always treat him this way. And I have to really stop and say, no, he's grown, he's evolved, he's changed, he's trying. And, you know, wanting the same in return because it's really difficult. This is someone you've spent for 18 years, presumably, most of us spent every other minute with this person. <laughs> like, they, there was, there's no one that you're, you've spent more time with on this planet. Right. But, and also, too, it, it's also that, that we a lot of times tend to view family as like the metronome, like the constant steady metronome of our lives. So we can go out and do whatever the fuck we want to do, but we'll always have the family. We'll always have the consistency of those people. And that I think is something that I have realized is unrealistic over time mm. where I'm like, I can't just expect that my family is always going to be the people that they have always been forever and ever and ever. And I just come back to this constant beat. Yeah. Anytime I'm out in the world, because it really like, boxes people in and so when they don't act the way that you think that they should act it like fucks with you and you're just like exactly you know pissed about it like why aren't they this person that i grew you know when i was eight years old but that's not a realistic thought right you can't expect that of people at all at all and i yeah i think that it's something i try now that i'm back in this you know geographical proximity to my family i try to remember that every day Right. And, you know, one thing I will say about the end of this movie um, is that in the end, Sammy kind of puts both of her kids on the bus and sends them to school. Damn, B. That is a good observation. She does. She puts both of her kids on the bus and sends them out in the world. And... You know, I just, it just really made me feel lucky to have my brother in my life to feel like all of my frustrations with him and us are valid. And also that I need to be more vigilant about, you know, being a part of my family and not just being like, I can't, I can't keep myself at arm's length. I think I've been trying to kind of have it both ways where I'll just be here doing my thing the way I always have been, whether I lived in Alaska or fucking England or whatever, like I'll just be here doing my thing. And when you live next to these people now, you can't do that. So I think I'm just trying to adjust to my own advice, which is like, see me, see people for who they are and not who they were. Right. No, this, you're exactly right. This movie brought up a lot (laughs) for me too, in terms of family and relationships between siblings. I I think this movie is wonderful. Like I um, miss, almost miss this era in film. Like I miss the kind of like indie drama. um, You know, it happens occasionally. I mean, not every movie is a Marvel movie. Right? No, but, but like a, a movie for adults. Yes. <laughs> like a movie for adults. I miss yeah. that. 
Yeah, I, I do too. I love the the I love to contemplate that these things while watching movies like this, and um, yeah, I, I this movie is great, and I hadn't seen it in a long time, and um, it's well acted. It's very natural, which I love, and I obviously I think that's Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo. They have that kind of acting style, and um, I'm I'm so glad that you picked it because honestly, it really did make me think about my own in the in the birth order of my family yep. and sort of like how um I, I how i am to my family it made me wonder a lot about that and um you know i just love your movie as i always do technically a 2000s movie right but you've seen it technically I've 2000 it. stressful <laughs> stressful but you've seen it yes not as stressful as hereditary obviously <laughs> Ah, Actually, I say nothing will be, but I have a movie coming up, I think, in a couple of weeks that I'm going to put on par with Hereditary that I I know you haven't seen. I know you haven't seen it. And I cannot (laughs) fucking wait. Oh, my God. This is like a social experiment in real time. Like, you're just (laughs) crumbling me with every selection. So. Look, Corey, Corey and Stephanie, we love you. And please <laughs> keep listening as I torture Millie with movies <laughs> from the early 2000s. Well, speaking of crumbling. Oh, shit. Your movie. Goddamn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I cannot wait. We, and I say this, this is not pejorative. I say this with all the best intentions. We are going to be devolving slightly. <laughs> From your film. (laughs) Not quite the indie, the acclaimed indie drama (laughs) that we just discussed. Although Uh, this film, this is the first time I real, I've seen this film before several times, but I never realized that it was like preserved by MoMA. So maybe we're not taking a step down. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm about to pop off on that. Um, But also too, This movie, dare I say, has some legit tender moments. (laughs) I might make make that argument. Um, We'll see where it goes. But so my movie for the theme, I Wish You Were Never Born. (laughs) Shit. Sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie from 1982. It was written and directed by Frank Henenlotter, and it's called Basket Case. What is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket? <laughs> to set this up properly, I feel it is my duty to kind of talk a little bit about the Grindhouse era. If you will, because Frank Henenlotter is, he calls himself an exploitation director. He won't call himself a horror director. Um, and and Basket Case is, is effectively a horror comedy, okay? As you will see as I talk about the, the plot a little bit. But Frank Henenlotter is very much steeped in that 42nd Street grindhouse tradition. Now, pre, um, I would say, late 50s, so like back in the day, 42nd Street was kind of like where all of the theater stuff was happening in New York City, right? So, I mean, there was that old musical 42nd Street. I mean, it was very much like an esteemed place to go see theater, okay? 
Then towards like the late 50s, early 1960s, it turned into what was called the deuce. Okay, so Mm. I think you saw, you remember the show, uh, The Deuce from HBO. And The Deuce was basically kind of this like den of iniquity, right? It was like where they had striptease shows, like all the, you know, people hung out and would get you anything you needed. Um, And the the term grindhouse like some people use the term grindhouse to talk about like the strip clubs or the burlesque shows in that area but the real definition of grindhouse or at least the one that we're using for our purposes is that it's the name for these movie theaters that in this area in this district of new york city that showed low budget film okay mostly horror mostly exploitation and they were usually cheap and they would watch the, they would play all day and night and they would encourage people to kind of sit through multiple movies. Okay. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometime again, I'll have to go into like a boring spiel about like double features, like the origin, like the origins of the double feature or whatever. But this was like an era where they were like, you're going to see exploitation movies day and night and just sit around and, and, and soak it all in. But they would show cheap movies that were cheaply made. So this is a lot of B movies, a lot of horror, a lot of genre films outside of Hollywood stuff. So they weren't even showing like second run. This isn't like a dollar movie theater scenario. Then they were showing like actual badly made movies, quote unquote. Right. And the vibe was, if you would go to grindhouses, you were a freak. Basically (laughs) you were like, you were basically like into um, the underbelly of society and you were like, you know, interested in, in weird, weird stuff. Right. And so this, this, this era kind of happened through the advent of television. And then once television came around, these theaters really kind of doubled down on the salaciousness. So you would see like softcore and hardcore porn. I mean, slasher films, a lot of like imported, um, kind of soft core stuff from Europe, but also like martial arts movies. Um, and there's actually a scene in my movie in Basket Case where one of the main character is at a grindhouse watching a an action or a, a martial arts film. So after the 80s, it, of course, with home video, they kind of just like died off. But the idea of them, the idea of this era inspired an entire generation of filmmakers and film watchers, including myself. Um, mm-hmm. it was a, it was a huge influence on me and what I do for my job. Um, and, and then now I think the grindhouse has almost become an aesthetic almost. And yeah. like, um, I don't know if you, if anybody saw the, the movie X by Ty West, the one that just has come out recently, I think that is very influenced by the grindhouse cinema. And obviously there's that movie grindhouse that was made by Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino a while back. So it's kind of that thing. Now it's become like an aesthetic if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And like I said, Frank Henenlotter, he loved this era. And one of his first shorts was played on the Grindhouse circuit and actually played with Pink Flamingos by John Waters, which oh, cool. was also like a classic midnight kind of Grindhouse film. And Frank Henenlotter, um, he's the champion of these films and he's been working alongside Something Weird Video and he's, he's trying to preserve a lot of these lost sort of grindhouse classics and so um you know he's he's a real one he he loves the exploitation world so for me basket case was actually one of the first exploitation movies i ever loved as a teen i mean it like i said it's a horror comedy 
It has a very t- twisted and ridiculous premise, if you will. But like I said, has moments of depth, I will say. Considering that it was made for like $35,000, which is no money, by yeah. the way. Like it, to this, it's like, that's like $20 in film movie budgets at this point right and it has a narrative which a lot of these movies didn't even have so i'll give it that yeah totally totally and it was shot on 16 millimeter which like we talked about in like with the far and away episode shooting in 70 millimeter 16 is basically the opposite of that it's it was used um because it's cheaper than 35 millimeter um if you if you were if you went to film school like me like pre-internet you probably if you took a film production class you shot in 16 millimeter i know i did um badly by the way oh my god it was i destroyed the first movie i ever made uh literally it it never came out it i filmed a movie in my film 101 class uh or my filmmaking 101 class and it, I don't know if I left the lens cap on, but it didn't oh come out. Oh, my God. And oh that's when God. I knew. <laughs> I That's when I knew I am not a filmmaker. Like, I was so deeply depressed by that that I never picked up a camera again. <laughs> that's so sad. You could have just done it again and taken the cap off. <laughs> I, I know, but if you, if you understood the amount of work that I put into that shit, dude, I... This, I don't know if I ever told this story, but essentially it was like the first project I ever made in my filmmaking 101 class. And I was fucking so ambitious about it. Like I was Aww. very influenced by Herschel Gordon Lewis at the time. And I was like, I'm going to do a horror movie. Uh, I got like five of my friends. We filmed in my friend's house. It was a story about um, a guy that goes to a bar and he meets a woman and then she steals his kidneys. Cause I guess that was like a big, <laughs> a big, urban legend at the time i fucking we made fake blood like oh i'll just put God. it to you this way my, my my roommate at the time ended up being the fake blood guy for the walking dead this oh was before God. he got the job this was when we were in college so i had the guy that made the blood for the walking dead make the fake blood <laughs> in my shitty two minute 16 mil soundless film that did not come out like i i swear to god we oh we put it god. through the projector and it was blank and i was like <gasps> i want to kill myself <laughs> i can't believe this didn't just didn't turn out and like i said that's when i knew i'm not a filmmaker <laughs> i i am a fucking film something else i will i will talk about them i will never shoot them but anyway holy shit um So back to the point originally, which is basically like this film was cheaply made on 60 millimeter. So it was definitely uh, uh, inspired by the kind of like B-movie grindhouse stuff, right? However, the version I watched, it had a title card at the beginning. It was restored by the Museum of Modern Art. (laughs) Which just threw me, threw me. (laughs) Listen... You know, I have thought about this in the past couple of years where I'm like, yo, the grindhouse has gone legit. And here is why <laughs> it's it's not just that like Doris Wishman movies are on Criterion Channel now. It is that literally th- MoMA is restoring basket case. That is crazy. <laughs> Did I ever expect this when I was like 17? No, that was an approved budget item at yes. some point in a meeting where they're like uh should we uh restore a basket case and they had to have a vote about it and like and it looks gorgeous 
gorgeous. Yeah. Like, it is gorgeous looking. Um, It just blows my mind. It blows my mind that any of this stuff would ever be preserved in a, like, perfect state. But you know what? Here's a one-sentence synopsis of Basket Case. It's it's very simple, because we're going to get into the beats of it, and it's just going to be a lot. So the simpleness of this one-sentence synopsis. A man and his twin brother seek revenge on the doctors who separated them. That's the underlying story. But it's so much more than that. (laughs) So much more. So much Okay. So... The, the main character of Basket Case is this guy named Dwayne Bradley, and he's played by an actor named Kevin Van Hentenerick. Okay? And at the beginning of the film, he is walking down 42nd Street, as we just talked about. Uh, it's really popping in this era. There's a guy following him who literally lists every drug known to mankind that he the has. Best. He's like, what you need? I, I've got tie sticks, poppers, meth, heroin, Opium, like he's the Amazon of drug dealers. This guy, <laughs> he has everything he needs. That scene goes on for like two solid minutes, and you're like, "Damn, he's still going." Right, and this is the perfect. That's the perfect encapsulation of what this part of town is. Okay, because uh, variably, Dwayne is is walking down the street. He is clearly from another place. He is from upstate. Okay. He does not fit into 42nd Street at all. And he's carrying this like wicker basket that has a padlock. And he, as the little kid from Big does, he checks into the shittiest motel, the shittiest, scariest motel in New York. I think when I was watching this, I had a thought that in an alt timeline, when Josh in Big is hearing the people fight and things crashing around him and he's having that horrible night in the hotel room, it's because Basket Case was happening at the same time. Fuck, that is absolutely what it was. Like, (laughs) if we could, these two universes have connected. And basically, Big is happening. Like, they're shooting Silly String and they're eating pizza in one room while Bilal is torching the place, basically. That's, That's what's happening. I fucking love that. We are changing the Wikipedia articles for both movies the minute we press stop, okay? So basically checks into this motel, 42nd Street, very seedy, lots of real peanut gallery residents. Like they're just, they're all kind of like living in this shitty hotel. And so he goes into the room, he gets settled. And then like, he opens the basket. Now, a lot of the drama of the first part of this movie is because you don't know what's in the basket. And obviously we are spoiling that. So if you really don't want to know, if you want to be very like, Marcellus Wallace Pulp Fiction about shit, then just fast forward the rest of the episode because we're talking about what's in the basket, obviously. So um, he basically opens the basket and he starts talking to the basket. He's kind of like, okay, what's in the basket, right? And then fucking like throws down four cheeseburgers and whatever's in the basket just houses these cheeseburgers and making these like snorting noises. And you're like, yo, what the fuck? Is that a dog or a rat or like a... What is up? There is a scene where he just like sl- like slices open a package of hot dogs, like raw hot dogs, and just starts <laughs> dropping them in like little logs. And you're hearing this like snarf and snarf. And you're like, God damn. <laughs> yes. You're like, holy shit. What the fuck? Right? So as it turns out, the reason why Dwayne 
Anna's basket are in this part of town is because they're trying to track down this doctor. And the doctor is named Dr. Needleman, which is a great name for a doctor. Um, and goes into the office, starts talking with the woman in the in the front office, and they're kind of flirting back and forth. She pops up later in the film. Um, charms his way in. And I have to say, it should be said that Dr. Needleman, the, the guy who plays Dr. Needleman, looks exactly like Mark Remier, the fucking loop daddy. Yes. Holy shit. This guy is loop daddy. And I don't know <laughs> if you guys know who loop daddy is. He is the he is the, one of the kings of the internet right now, but uh, go find him on Instagram. Oh god, he's basically the um, the guy that makes improvised songs on his keyboard. I'm sure you've seen him. He's a lot of times in his underwear. You know, <laughs> do with that information what you may. But anyway, the doctor looks exactly like him, which really made me laugh. Oh so, god. Dwayne basically is like takes off his shirt. And shows the doctor that he's got this giant scar running down the side of his body that basically looks like the cover of that Joy Division album. I don't know how mm-hmm. else to say it. I also have a giant scar running down my body, and I only wish it looked like that. Because uh, it was like cascading. You're like, what in the hell is this? Like, what is this thing? Um, but basically, he's trying to get in touch with some other doctor via Dr. Needleman, right? And it's very mysterious and you don't really know why. But basically, there are times where he goes back to the, he actually goes to the Grindhouse, one of the Grindhouse theaters, to kind of pass some time. One of the weirdos in the Grindhouse theater tries to steal the basket. He goes into the bathroom, opens up the basket, and he's like, holy shit! And again, you don't know what's in this basket yet. You're just like, everybody is flipped out about what's what's. And everybody in the hotel is trying to figure out what's in the basket. It's like this big fucking question, okay? So basically, as it turns out, they both go back, both the basket and Dwayne go back to Dr. Needleman's office when it's closed because they want to confront him, okay? Now, Dwayne opens the basket and whatever is in it comes out. And is he? Dwayne's like, I'm staying here. You go take care of business. So immediately you're like, what the fuck? It's got to be some kind of like creature. Then all of a sudden you see this creepy little hand open a doorknob and you're like, oh, fuck. Now we're starting to get a little bit more of an understanding of what's in the basket. Okay. Now, what ends up happening is that this, whatever it is, is revealed as this slightly booger colored creature that has it's like kind of um bumpy and has arms has arms and like a weird humanish face it's just it's a bumpy head with arms that's the no no other body part <laughs> yes <laughs> I it's think, like i think it's imagine like you remember in, when you were in elementary school and you used those pencil toppers with the like the wiggly arms ah! <laughs> imagine that is what is in the basket, except sort of more booger colored. It's just, it, it, it's gray. It's like a gray. Uh, it is really freaky. When you first see this thing, you're like, oh my God. And then he rips the doctor to fucking shreds. Like, oh, just, and let me also point out that this little bitch communicates exclusively through shrieking. Yes. <laughs> like the shouting in the hotel has increased seven 
100% since Dwayne moved in. And this is no more evident than the scene that comes pretty much immediately after when he murders Dr. Needleman, which is that Dwayne has decided that he wants to go spend some time with the lady in the front office, right? They kind of had a connection. He wants to go out. So <laughs> just like in All That Heaven Allows, Dwayne goes and buys the thing a TV. And it's like, just sit here and watch TV <laughs> and you won't be lonely. Uh, I'm going to go out and have fun with this woman, okay? The craziest part and this is this is this is what happens before it's revealed what this actually is. But it seems that Dwayne is able to kind of telepathically communicate with whatever's in the basket. Okay, so essentially they're kind of like communicating with each other wordlessly, but it also in different places. So essentially, the the creature, if you will, realizes that Dwayne is out on a date. And then he flips the entire hotel room upside down. He's like fucking smashing the TV. And when I tell you that I cry laughing when this happens, like this entire trashing of the hotel has me in stitches. Every fucking time I lose my mind, especially when he grabs the post of the bed on the floor and just starts slamming the bed up and down on the floor. And the best part, okay, keep in mind, this is a low-budget film. So there are parts of it where his movements is actual, like, stop-motion animation. So it's, like, this really kind of bad stop-motion animation of this, like, booger guy that's trashing a hotel room. And then, like, his actual hands are, you know, like, when you see his hands are, like, human hands. It's actually Frank Henwater's <laughs> hand. So you're just, like... Watching this little guy smash up this hotel room and I scream. I just scream every and time. And again, shrieking the whole time. Like, not trying to play it cool at all because nobody knows he's in there. But <laughs> now suddenly yes. everyone in the hotel knows he's in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they all try to, they break in. They're like, who the fuck is trashing this place? Meanwhile, basket case is out the fucking window. Like, he's like <laughs> piecing, right? And then... What ends up happening is Dwayne shows up and is like, oh, fuck, what happened in here? Little Buddy was hiding in the toilet <laughs> from these nosy-ass neighbors. And so here is the tender moment that I'm talking about. And it is fucking insane to be like, oh, here's this tender moment between this little guy and his human counterpart, while he's being pulled out of a toilet and like Dwayne pulls him out of the toilet and like kind of swaddles him in a towel. And it's like, I'll never leave you. Like, don't like, I'm, I know you were angry at me. I'll never leave you. And I'm like, this is fucking insane. Right. Like, he, he absolutely cradles him. Like you would a child getting out of a bath, like a bathtub. Yes. <laughs> and he's pulling him out of a toilet and you just see the little basket case face. And you're just like, <laughs> Wow. Like, this is absurd, but also, why am I emotional right now? I'm feeling <laughs> emotional. I was not feeling emotional. That scene also makes me laugh every fucking time yes. I see it. Because he pulls him out of a toilet. Yes, you are laughing your ass off, but also like, oh my god, why am I feeling emotional about these two? Um, so, here's what happens. So, 
they're not any closer to, to, to reaching these doctors that they really want to talk to. Okay. Now, what, what ends up happening is that Dwayne gets drunk and starts talking to this woman named Casey, who is a sex worker. She lives across the hall from him, right? And he lays out the entire scenario. And this is when you finally find out what this is. So essentially, the thing in the basket is actually Dwayne's separated conjoined twin that has some kind of like congenital disorder. And then Dwayne goes into this whole story about his parents. And essentially, like, they were born together. There's this really crazy flashback sequence where the dad is basically like, it's a very it's alive moment where he's like, that thing is not human, like, get rid of it. And then forces them to separate, like, gets these doctors. Uh, I'm assuming this happened in their home. I was like, where is yeah. the surgery happening? <laughs> like oh home surgeons like they just come and show up and they do it in your home it's truly um, like in the dining room <laughs> yes it's in the dining room and you have like you see like all these doctors in there and basically you know Dwayne is like no 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 no, don't do it but they they slice it off and then they put it in a fucking garbage bag and put it out on the curb okay and that that Foley guy had a really good time with that scene because it just sounds like velcro being separated <laughs> when they separate the bodies and you're like fucking hell dude you did not have to go that hard yo i was on the sorry to people who were flying delta <laughs> on the day that i watched this on the plane but you know what i fast forwarded that part for your for your convenience so it's rough it's rough and i mean it definitely veers into this like body horror stuff obviously very traumatic for the kid and like i said they just put we find out the the twin is named balal by the way so his he's got a name balal um and basically Dwayne comes out and realizes what happened and then that's their bond moment that's the moment that they're like we're going to be together forever. We're going to get these motherfuckers that did this. And it's just you and me on the road. Let's hit it. So basically, from this point on, the movie kind of gets a little crazy, I will say, because... From this point! <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's already been crazy, but then it gets kicked up a notch. Until now, it's been a Merchant Ivory film. Yeah. <laughs> You were watching the great British bake-off before this. Um, no, it gets a little crazy because here's the thing, and this is why it it works for our theme this week, I think, is because you start to get the sense that, that Dwayne has this very big responsibility and always has. And he is the person that's always taken care of Bilal because they literally put him in a trash can. Like, they were like, fuck yeah. him. Like, put him in a trash can. But Dwayne feels protective. And then you realize that Bilal is not right, <laughs> like, in a lot of ways. Like, and that he's possibly been sabotaging Dwayne's, like, romantic relationships. And yes. if you want to get down to brass tacks, Bilal is a sex pest and has maybe like assaulted a few women. Right. I'm not going to give away the ending, but I'm just saying Bilal is not this innocent per person, if you will, no. or whatever. So the, the movie goes pretty, pretty crazy. It's like, it was already at 60 miles per hour. It's going like 140 miles an hour at this point. And, um, 
essentially there's a situation that happens with the woman from the front office. Um, they eventually will find the doctors that, um, and they have a reckoning, but and I won't give away the ending ending because it is very, um, I don't know. I contemplated it more than I probably should have. <laughs> like I was like, this is fucking Shakespearean. God damn. Why? Did, did you have PMS while you were watching this movie? <laughs> What is happening right now? <laughs> Listen, I am not trying. I am not trying to to necessarily like um, intellectualize basket case <laughs> as much as maybe um, you think I am. However, I will say that for a fucking movie that was made for thirty five thousand dollars about this insane premise, there are some moments where I'm like, "Damn, dude! Like that's crazy! Like there's it steps out of that." grindhouse to maybe yeah. a little something more thoughtful and i appreciate that i appreciate that i think that's cool because the acting is deplorable yes so i think it's great that you could find something redeemable to that level of like making you feel real emotion i mean you're like this was preserved by the museum of modern art in new york there has to be something. And I'm like, maybe that, like, maybe there is something. Even a stop clock is right twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be, the artist is present. <laughs> but, okay, if you wanted to still, if you wanted to still something that applies to our theme, right? It is beyond this crazy film, this crazy, cheaply made exploitation film. The idea of, the responsibility of the sibling yes. responsibility comes back in my movie somehow where you're just like, imagine what it must feel like to just constantly have to protect, you know, and care about like a sibling. And, you know, that, that concept I think is very universal and it somehow applies in this hilarious film, no doubt, but it is that thing where it does make me, think about my own <laughs> somehow <laughs> basket case makes me think about my own um responsibility to my younger sister over the years and like oh man my mom used to make me fucking take her everywhere everywhere and in a way i was always protecting her right right but i didn't get that protection a lot of times like and i think that that's the case a lot with older kids especially i'm gonna maybe project a little here but older kids of immigrants i feel like i've talked to them you know both my parents are immigrants i feel like there is a there's a lot put on the oldest child in mm -hmm. those families and i really felt that as i was growing yeah. up where i was like i have to basically be like a third parent to my little sister you know, I mean, I'm not saying I was older. We're only three years apart, but I was always monitoring her and making sure she was okay. Yeah. I mean, up until this day. And I just felt like there was nobody that did that for me. And so, it, you know, it's just that thing that you think about sometimes. We're like, oh, yeah, I never had anybody doing that for me, but I was doing that for somebody else. That's crazy. Yeah. But Look, nobody ever put me in a basket and let me trash a fucking hotel room. <laughs> and it's not too late. I have often wanted to eat 12 fucking hot dogs at once and nobody fed me those. And I feel, I feel a little something about that. Unfortunately, <laughs> we can, we can write these wrongs and we can, 
<laughs> become a higher version of ourselves by and again consider my mind blown that you are smart enough to take this movie and relate it to an immigrant narrative <laughs> someone needs to put that shit in moment needs to preserve this conversation <laughs> cause that has blown my mind and spun me out look but I will also put you in a basket, throw some raw hot dogs in there, and let you trash your hotel room if that's what it takes. Listen, as as much as I have found a way into this film on an emotional level, please believe this movie is fucking hilarious. It's just like so stupid and funny. And every time Bilal screams, I lose my mind. It is. <laughs> so hilarious to me like it is a horror comedy film like don't no bones about that like i'm like i said i'm not trying to make this into this like high art okay but considering how much garbage i've watched in the same vein of this film like over the years i'm like Mm -hmm. this is actually a fucking thoughtful movie compared to a lot that came out around this time under the same conditions. You know what I'm saying? Completely. Like I said, it has a narrative. It's got a good scope to it. It's funny. I am 100% making Bilal scream my ringtone. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I can't remember. There are so many times where he comes screaming out of the basket. I think it's like towards, like when he, towards the end, like I said, I won't spoil it. That particular scream that cut, like pops out of the basket is <laughs> truly, I want that on loop at my wedding. Like, I just want that <laughs> shit. Like, <laughs> marching down the aisle to the Bilal screech. <laughs> so our, our wedding announcement is going to be me and my you know fiance like he'll be in the toilet i'll be swaddling his face (laughs) that'll be like our announcement (laughs) to the world that we are (laughs) that we are joining in holy matrimony i don't know i (laughs) like i said quite a bit different from your film this week but ultimately a movie about siblings and how complicated it can be i'm it you, we we did it, folks. We got there in the end. <laughs> I could not wait for this episode <laughs> to hear all of this. It is my favorite thing we've ever done. And I can't believe. I would not be surprised if Kenneth Lonergan, there might be an article out there somewhere where he says, you know, he was influenced by Basket Case. <laughs> And then we will be, <laughs> we will be redeemed. Um, I don't care if we're ever redeemed. This is a great goddamn theme and a wonderful pairing. This is the best double feature that has ever existed, as far this, as I'm concerned. Yes, and not, and not to toot our own horn, really, but this is the best of us you're going to get. Honestly, I feel like <laughs> for, for my money, I'm like, like pairing these two films together like i don't even want to know like what you guys were thinking about these two together i mean i don't know like some people really get it immediately but other people are like i don't even want to try and that's kind of how i 
felt like maybe people were like, we don't even know like what this is. So let's just not think about it. Let's just wait for it to happen. And I just feel like this is the best representation of us as people. We like highbrow and lowbrow at the same time. That's how we are. Take it or leave it. Right. We will give you an artful indie film and then pair it with a grindhouse film. <laughs> and that's I, what this podcast is all about is making it make sense and i think yeah. we did i think we did oh uh, yeah no i do love the thought experiment of that i feel like you know that should be its own podcast is like and i'm sure it probably is but it's that thing of like yeah taking a, a higher brow film and pairing it with a grindhouse film i think that's a that's a good thought experiment to have but um i had so much fun on this fucking episode i'm so Me glad too to be with you here again as i always say um look if you if you have any thoughts please email us at i saw what you did pod at gmail.com as we always say please send us questions for bonus episodes stories about movie experiences i mean if you went to the grindhouse when you were hanging out on 42nd street please god tell us like if anybody was actually at the grindhouse's I would love to know that. Please email us. Um, I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. And ask your parents. Like, get, make it real awkward. Be like, hey, you lived in New York in the 60s and 70s. You ever go to these films? Just make it as awkward as possible. Yeah. Did you and dad uh, make me while you were watching Bolero with Bo Derek? I don't know. Like, just... <laughs> y'all, y'all ever pop in one of those uh, quarter machine places where you pop in the quarter <laughs> peep show? <laughs> Give me the real business about your lives, mom and dad. <laughs> and then you can tell us about it. You can also send us handwritten letters because we do have a P.O. box if yes. you prefer. Um, or you can find us on our social media accounts, which is I, at Isawpod on Twitter and Instagram. That's right. And as we say, we always have merch in the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And remember, please, you can now listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free, plus all of our bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Yeah, and on that note, we actually, we don't have an episode next week, but we do have a bonus coming out. Um, So exactly what she just said, head over to the Wondery Plus app. And then, Danielle, for the episode... Not next week, but the week after. What are our movies for that one? Yes, so our episode for June 7th, the movies are Blood Simple from 1984 and Miracle Mile from 1988. Fuck! Those are fantastic films, I gotta say. Yeah! I am so excited to see those both together. Danielle, as always, it's been a pleasure Always love laughing with you. We did it, folks. (laughs) (laughs) This was great. This is so much fun. All right. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hartstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. And you can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free plus bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.